Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be Psalm 25. Uh, I'll be reading the whole chapter. So if you can, just follow along as I read Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let me not let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in all the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with that violent hatred, they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and upness and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning. We pray now, Lord, as our brother Brian brings your message to us this morning, that your words will speak through him. We pray, Lord, that we will open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to teach us and that we'll use these words in our lives every single day. Lord, we just pray that we will not forget that you are our, our God and that you are a powerful and mighty God. We thank you so much for this time together. We pray all this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, uh, Tom, for reading our text this morning. Appreciate that, definitely. Uh, hopefully our text here today will be a blessing to us as we seek to walk through it. Uh, we're continuing our study here on Psalms, uh, God's playlist. And so a psalm is actually a song that uh, has been collected and put in uh, this book of Psalms, part of the uh, collection that Israel would have used as they worshipped God in the temple. And then in turn, it's been preserved by us, uh, preserved for us, sorry, preserved for us by God, and uh, we see here these songs that we are meant to also read and partake of in worshiping Him and enjoying Him and understanding Him 
and understanding even us and, and how we should view the world. And so these Psalms help us to see um, the emotional side, the feeling side of us, and to uh, kind of put that upon the, uh, uh, the backdrop of who God is and begin to see the world and our own feelings and our own response rightly. And so the Psalms are such a blessing. Many people have gone through uh, very difficult times. And when they're asked, you know, what part of God's Word has been uh, encouraging to them and uh, insightful to them and instructing them and helping them to work through that, they have described the Psalms as the place where they have gone and found great comfort. We can understand that. I mean, songs, poetry, has this idea of kind of who we are and how we feel being channeled into these words. But then in turn, because these are actually not just the psalmist's words, they are God's very words. What do we see? We see, we see God's truth channeled into them. And His truth confronts our feelings and seeks to encourage us to feel rightly and view the world rightly and live rightly. And so hopefully you'll find encouragement here in our psalm today. Uh, last week we looked at Psalm 24. And then previous Previous years, we've looked at all the way from 1 through verse uh, through chapter 23, and so hopefully it's been encouraging. I said last week, I hope that I'll be able to, to finish this out. I'll probably be, I would probably be in my 70s if we kept the same track, so I might have to like add more psalms each year um, so, that, uh, so that I can effectively work through all of them, um, but definitely our desire is to just keep trekking along through the psalms each year, and eventually be able to preach Psalm 150 uh, together with you. So that's, that's the goal. So uh, the title of our sermon today is Worshiping the Trustworthy Deliverer. Worshiping the Trustworthy Deliverer. And so let's ask God for help today. Father, we ask for your encouragement and strength and blessing today. It is our hope that we come to these psalms and we see in them, not just ourselves, though we are there, definitely there and we need to see ourselves. But more than that, we see you and we see ourselves in light of you. And I, I pray that even as we consider um, all the things that are going on around us in our world today, all the things that are seeking to provide to us deliverance and calling us to trust in them and calling us to place ourselves in their hands for guidance on how to live life and how to understand life and how to see life correctly and whether it's uh, success or fame or or money, uh, wealth, whether it's you know the election and who wins and where our hope might be, Lord, whether it's COVID and 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 how uh, we're we're having to trust in in different uh, different people and different things to provide safety. Ultimately, Lord, this psalm calls us to trust in you in you and your providence and you and your guidance we have hope not only in this life but in the next and i pray that i would faithfully present that truth that i would clearly present that the only deliverer in this life and the next is jesus christ and that our hope is that we belong to Him both body and soul and life and death. That is our only hope. And I pray that we would see that today. But I pray that that wouldn't just be true of us here as we meet, but that would be true 
of each of your churches that are meeting today as part of the body of Christ as they come together to faithfully go to your word and to preach it, that they would be preaching that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. And we pray for Bible Baptist in Romeoville and Pastor Kip. We pray for First Baptist Church in Bolingbrook and Pastor Vaughn as they preach your word today. May they preach our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ alone. Lord, this is, this is your glorious gospel message. And may each of us as your church, seeking to faithfully represent you, preach the gospel faithfully today. And that as we do, may your gospel message resound across the entirety of your creation. May the churches across this world, as they proclaim your gospel, fulfill your calling to spread your name and your glory to every end of the earth. We thank you that you allow us as a church to be a part of that, and may we faithfully do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today our psalm is an acrostic. So each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I know you can't really tell that in your English Bible, but uh, that is definitely the case. It's not a perfect acrostic as some of the letters are missing. There's a couple of them, or at least they're questionable in the, in the Hebrew that we have been given. Um, and yet, you know, it's, I bring it up because I think there's some important reasons why we would consider the fact that it was written in acrostic. Now, it could just be that the, the author here, it's attributed to David. So David wrote it because, you know, he was interested in this poetic form. And so he thought, well, you know, that would be a cool poetic form to put in. I would challenge myself and uh, try to write each verse with a uh, specific letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, definitely that's the case with uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is acrostic as well, in the largest chapter in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 119, each set of eight verses, each line of each set of eight verses starts with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses of Psalm 119 start with the letter alpha, A, A, um, alf. I think it's Alf. So anyway, I'll check my Hebrew later. <laughs> right. Alpha, I think, is the Greek word. But anyway, so it starts with the letter A, and uh, that letter A takes starts the beginning of each of those phrases in the first eight verses. And so it goes through all of the Hebrew alphabet. That's actually a perfect uh, acrostic. All the Hebrew alphabet, eight, every eight stanzas starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Amazing, right? So this is a, a smaller version of that. And again, not a perfect one. So maybe it was just a poetic challenge, but it could possibly be meant to convey meaning as well. Like, for instance, that there is confidence in God, because that's really where he's going here. This trustworthy, confident deliverer, especially as he starts to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I'm placing my soul in your hands. That this confidence is from A to Z. Now, the Hebrew alphabet doesn't end with Z. It ends with Tav, which would be equivalent to our T. But the same idea, A to Z, all right? So there's confidence from God, A to Z. But probably the main reason, as we consider that Psalms were meant to be instructive to God's people, is that it was probably meant as a mnemonic device. So it was probably meant to help with memory as well. So as they memorize these verses, the different letters starting in the alphabet, working through the alphabet was helpful to them in remembering what had been written here. So any of those could be possible meanings as why they used an acrostic. 
And that can help us understand that there is some there is some desire here for both to convey some meaning of confidence to this, but also to help us know it well, which would mean that God's intention for his Psalms and for the rest of Scripture is not just that we know it when we open our Bibles, but that we would hide God's Word in our heart and be able to remember it and call it up and to remember it. So why? So that it can affect every aspect of our life. So that the Word of God, not just the sermon, is being connected to everyday life. I say that because the last point of my sermon is usually connecting to everyday life. But it's not just meant to be the sermon that connects. It's meant to be God's Word that connects. And every time we open it, we are meant to seek to connect it to everyday life. So the main point this morning. So enough introduction. Let's get into the text here. The main point, you are invited to join in worshiping God who is your trustworthy deliverer. You are invited to join in worshiping God who is your trustworthy deliverer. So the psalmist is inviting us in to proclaim the glory and excellencies of God. And just as we saw his sovereignty and his holiness last week and and the fact that we have been brought into that sovereignty and holiness and and be able to stand in his presence because of the, the mediation of our King Jesus. So now today we are being presented with our trustworthy deliverer and our response should be worship and that worship should include not only just reveling in his glory which is part of it and seeing him for who he is and just standing amazed and in awe of who he is but then living for that very being that we have stood in amazement of following after him and so i've actually phrased our questions today with that word following so The first question is, why follow after God? As we consider the trustworthy deliverer who is meant to be worshipped, we're going to ask, why follow after God? And then the second question, what can those who follow after God expect? So I think the psalmist presents us with both those. For the first half of the psalm, why follow after God? Why is He worthy of our worship and and our giving of our lives to Him? And then what can those who follow after God expect? So, First of all, why follow after God? Because God is trustworthy. Because God is trustworthy. As David here begins his psalm, lifting up his soul to God, he gives us the reason, Oh my God, in you I trust. God is trustworthy, worthy of our trust. And we can see here four reasons why he is worthy of our trust just here in the first three verses of this psalms and the first one comes from that verse one his people entrust their souls to him his people entrust their souls to him david is lifting up his soul and placing it in the hands of god because he trusts in him god is worthy to hold our souls in his hand now there's not there's not a lot of people we give ourselves entirely to Right? I mean, there's people that we live with that know us fairly well, and yet, yet we do not always reveal everything about us. Now, that, this, it's not, that doesn't mean we don't always say just what we're thinking without any filter, because sometimes we do that, right? We just, here's who I am. Blech. You know, and people have to deal with that, right? But there are still aspects of us that internally that, 
that still hold fear, even, even with the closest relationship we have, there's still, there's still fear that withholds things from them. There's still, um, there's still things that we guard that are maybe precious to us that we would not want to reveal. And yet what we see here is God is trustworthy to hold our very souls. And, and I mean, we already know, or we should know, that the God that we are speaking of here is omniscient and knows everything anyway. Like, Why is He worthy to be entrusted with our souls? Because He already knows what's there. There's not a part of you that God does not know. And therefore, why, why not then give it to Him? But then in turn, as we think about our, our souls and the salvation of our souls as well, He is worthy of, of it because He's able to save. This we looked at last week. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He's able to save. And therefore, God has poured out His grace upon us so that we might have His salvation and call Him the God of our salvation. If He's the one who saves our souls, He's worthy to hold them. Who else can save our souls? We know we can't. Who else would you entrust your soul to? There's no one else on earth who can save our souls. It is only God. He is he is trustworthy, and so his people entrust their souls to him. But not only that, his people entrust their reputation to him as well. Verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame here. Here this idea of shame has to do with a reputation as if you know somebody had bought into something and then came to realize that that something really wasn't true or real or exists you know have you ever been scammed before how uh how much do you want to tell people about how scammed you were right well you don't want to tell people very much at all right when you get scammed you want to you want to hide that right because it's shame you feel like you've been taken advantage of and here's here's the deal if we put our trust in god and god doesn't come through aren't we going to feel like we've been taken advantage of And here's what the psalmist is saying. That God won't take advantage of us. God won't put us to shame. He, he always follows through on His promises. Now, there are people who want to claim more than what God promises. You know, we got the prosperity gospel people who are saying like, you know, if you just follow God, He's going to pay all your mortgage bills and He's going to heal you of every single sickness. You, you will never die. Except all the prosperity gospel people continue to die because it's the point of the man wants to die and after that the judgment. Right? God already tells us that in our, in our human flesh, what is it? it's wasting away. Right? What does He promise for eternal life? Is that one day we'll be with him in glory with resurrected bodies, which means our bodies die, have wasted away to nothing. Does he always promise us that our mortgage bills are going to be paid? No, he doesn't. But even, even in the most difficult of times, what does he promise? That in our weakness, he is strong, that his grace is sufficient for us, that in any trial or temptation, we are able to stand up under it, and bear it in His strength. That all things, whether good or bad, work together 
or good to what? Conform us to the image of His Son, not take care of our mortgage bills. What God truly promises us, new life in Christ, He delivers. And ultimately, He will demonstrate His power and His promises fulfilled when we are resurrected and live with Him for an eternity. We will not be put to shame. It's easy to sometimes look at the world around us and wonder like the psalmist does. You know, the rich are prospering. I'm trying to serve God and I feel like everything's coming at me and going against me. And the psalmist says, and then I entered the temple of the Lord and I saw the end of those who did not follow after me. How they will be utterly destroyed and live out an eternity under the wrath of God. You know, God's people, though humbled now, will be lifted up and exalted and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. You see, those who trust in God will not be put to shame. We entrust our reputation to Him. But not only that, the psalmist goes on in the second part of verse 2 to say, let not my enemies exalt over me. Here, His people entrust their security to Him. Though there are enemies around us that war against us, this world is not a friend to Jesus, and therefore it's not a friend to the followers of Jesus. Satan is an enemy from the very beginning of humanity's existence as he comes in the form of the Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. And so we see our enemies around us, and yet... The call of the psalmist is, let not my enemies exalt over me. We are trusting our security to God. There are enemies that we do not have the power to vanquish in our own strength, and yet God is greater. I mean, when you think about you know, the greatest enemy, we talked about this last week, the greatest enemy is sin and death. Do we have the power to vanquish sin and death? No. We don't. In fact, we who are claiming to be God's people, we who have put our faith and trust in Him, we have come here this morning having, having lived in sin all week. Sinning in our own hearts, sinning in our speech, sinning in the way we treated others. We've lived this. We don't have the power to vanquish our enemy's sin, let alone to keep ourselves from death. This is the power of God in us. The power of Christ. Any sin you conquered this week? Any sin you resisted? Any sin you fought against? You fought against because you have been empowered by Jesus Christ to fight. You're entrusting your security to Him and enabled by His strength to then say no to sin. That's His work in you. It's you saying no, but it's His work in you. It's, it's Him that we are trusting. But ultimately, what do we see? Jesus returns and He vanquishes His enemies and we are are brought into His eternal kingdom. And what are we told? No more sin. No more death. We're entrusting our security to Him because ultimately we know He will bring true, eternal, ultimate, unending security to us. And then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall ever be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And here His people entrust their future to Him. Our future is ultimately in the hands. We are waiting. None who wait for you 
We are waiting for Him. We may feel today like you know, Christianity has a bad name. It gets a bad rap. A lot of times it's because there are Christians that are not living like Christians. But sometimes it's because we're living like Christians. Because we're willing to say, I'm going to live for God and not for self. That does not sit well in a society that really wants to live just for self. That we have to live under God's authority. It's not popular at all. And so what we're waiting for the day, the future that will come, when we truly will be declared as righteous and holy and our reputation will be absolved before the world, whereas those who are wantonly treacherous, who have rejected God and have sought to live their way, this is that Romans 1 idea where they denied the very existence of God and so God gave them over to their own lust, their own desires. They will be, they will have a horrific end in the future, but we are entrusting our future to Him. So why follow after God? Because God is trustworthy with our souls, with our reputation, with our security, with our future. But God is also the deliverer as He presents Him here at the end of verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. For you are the God of my salvation. Our hope is in God, not in ourselves. And why do we trust in Him? Because ultimately, He is the one who is to deliver us. And so we see here, God is the deliverer. And uh, as God is the deliverer, His people trust in Him for their salvation. So they trust in Him for their salvation. He is the God of my salvation. There is no one else to trust in. We cannot trust in ourselves True biblical Christianity is not a religion of working hard to make yourself good enough to be acceptable to God. It is a, uh, the biblical Christianity declares that we are not and cannot be good enough. That we do not have the ability to be good enough. That we have fallen short. And it doesn't matter if you jump, uh, you know, 10 feet out into the Grand Canyon or 20 feet out into the Grand Canyon or 30 feet out into the Grand Canyon, you're going to fall to the very bottom. And the only way to jump over the Grand Canyon is to make it all the way over. And none of us, no matter how good we are, make it all the way over. Because in order for us to earn salvation, we have to be perfect. Having never failed. And that is not true of any of us. In fact, the psalmist is going to present that to us here in this psalm, that we are not good enough. So his people have to trust in him for their salvation. But what do they trust about him? Well, look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. His people trust his love as Savior. God's love. What causes God to save us? It's not because we're good. It's not because we're pretty. It's not because we're nice. It's not because we're talented. It's because God loves. God will have mercy on whom you have mercy and compassion on whom you will have compassion. It's because God is love that anyone is saved. But not only that, we see in verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. We just looked at that. It's His love that causes Him to, to, to be willing to deal with our sins. But notice then it goes for 
the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So not only is it His love, but His people trust His goodness has saved them as well. That God's goodness, motivated by His desire to do good and display good and to show His goodness to us, He has saved us. That's where we can say, in, 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 in some ways, like it's because of God's pleasure and His delight that He saves us. Because His love and goodness are these, these attributes, these characteristics of God by which salvation comes to His people. Because God delighted and took pleasure in it. He saved us. Not only that, we see verses 8-10 through 10, we see His people trust His revealed grace has saved them. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His path. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Now, those, those last two words are very important. They help us understand this is the revealed grace of God. This is His truth that has been revealed and given to His people. This is what we hold in our hands, His covenants and His testimonies. So the Israel would have understood this as to have been the, the Pentateuch and what they had of God's Word written by Moses and the, the law that God had given to them through Moses. Now they have these and they're meant to live by them, but this is the means by which God instructs, first of all, the sinner. Notice that. Verse 8, therefore He instructs the sinner. Where do we all start? God didn't save us while we were good. God saved us while we were enemies. God began instructing us while we were still sinners. It's sinners that need to hear the Word of God. But in turn, what happens? As God reveals His Word of grace to us, what does it do? It transforms us. Regeneration happens so that we are humble enough to accept it. That's the next steps here. He leads the humble in what is right. Not every sinner who hears the Word of God will accept it. It takes a certain heart. And we all as sinners start with a heart of stone. What God does to those who are His people is He removes the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. A heart that is able to feel and be a heart that is able to be humble. The heart of stone is proud. It will not accept the words of God. But the heart of flesh is tender and humble and able to see His truth and what is right. So what does it say? He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His ways. In turn, it goes on to say then, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. So what does the humble do then? As he learns his ways, he embraces God's way as the best way. As the most loving and faithful way. Is it always the way we would choose? No, there's a way that seems right to the man at the end thereof is destruction. That's what Proverbs reminds us. We have our own ways. But the humble submits himself to God and seeks to live his way. As God's people, that's what we're meant to do. And then keep His covenant and His testimonies. Obedience doesn't come before we are saved. It comes after we're saved. But obedience is a necessary part. To be His people, we need to be obedient people. People who are called out of our sinfulness, given hearts of flesh, to humbly accept God in His way, and then to live according to it. To keep it. We've been saved by His revealed grace. It wasn't our idea. 
It wasn't any human being's idea. This is how, this is how we're going to create this salvation experience with God. No, this is God's idea. God reveals it to us. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. Rather, He gives it to us. He reveals it. That's why it's revealed grace. And it's because of His revealed grace that we are saved. He delivers us through the giving of His Word to us. How will they hear unless someone preach to them? But what is the context of their preaching? It is the revealed grace of God. It is the gospel that God has given to His people. Verse 11 then, and really this is like the central verse of this whole text. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Here we see His people trust His glory has saved them. His glory has saved them. For my name's sake, for the glory of God's name, He pardons guilt, even great guilt. So that we might say this, that no sin, there is no sin greater or that has a greater name than God's name. He is able to pardon even the greatest of sins. Because His glory can overwhelm any of our sin. So no sin with a greater name, greater power, greater authority than the name of God and His glory. And so for His glory, He saves us. And that's, that's good news. Because why were we made? We made to know God so that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him. And His very act of saving us from our sins, of pardoning us from the guilt of our sins, is to display His glory. The very first act that we do of trusting in Jesus to save us and casting all our sin on Him so that He might pay for them so that we are no longer guilty of them, the very first act is already fulfilling the purpose that we were made to do, of bringing Him glory. That's amazing to think of. Second question, though, we got to move on. What can those who follow after God expect? First of all, God's guidance. God's guidance. And so in verse 12, we read that He will, that Him He will instruct in the ways that He chooses. That those who fear God or those who are His people who, who now understand and see God rightly and, and understand their own sinfulness. And so they, they stand before God with a proper fear of the fact that they deserve God's righteous judgment. And yet, what do we read? That He instructs them in the way that they should choose. That His people expect should expect His instruction. That God is the great teacher and God knows the right path for you in every situation. His his way is the right way. We begin to understand who we truly are in this world. We begin to fear the Lord rightly and understand who He is, and He then guides us. But His people also expect His blessing. Verse 13, His soul shall abide in well-being, and His offspring shall inherit the land. Here, Here we see this promise 
Definitely a specifically Old Testament promise of inheriting the land. I mean, this is what's promised to um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's promised to the people of Israel as they come out of slavery in Egypt. He's taking them to the promised land. There's a land that will be theirs given to them. And David here is actually in the land and uh, you know, eventually rules as king there. And so, I mean, he's proclaiming this well-known promise of the covenant. But as we go to the Old Testament, what do we read? We read that all of the promises have their yes or their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And even this land promise has its fulfillment in Him. That ultimately we will be in the promised land and the land of rest for an eternity with Jesus Christ. That this is the blessing that I promise. Now, some people can look at that and want to say, well, Again, we go back to prosperity gospel, like, oh, well, he's going to bless you this way, that way, the other way. Um, he's going to give you land, you know? Pray for 100 acres. Pray for 1,000 acres. That's not what he's saying here. It's connected to this covenant that is ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ as our hope. And what we today have the benefit and blessing of living in this current time is that we now see clearly all the blessings that have come to us in Jesus Christ. We benefit from Him now in ways beyond imagination. And in turn, the promises that are granted to us as we read through the rest of the New Testament, as we read through Revelation, as we get to chapters 21, and we see what glorious promises await us. We can understand how the soul that abides in well-being, the soul that lives under God's care, shall inherit the land shall receive such eternal blessings. Not only that, His people expect His covenant relationship with Him. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Now, friendship here is not implying equality in any way. Rather, it points to the covenant which is involving unequal parties. We have the sovereign of the covenant, God, who gives the covenant to us. We are his vassals that have been graciously brought into a covenant relationship with him. So that describes the sovereign of the covenant as gracious and good and friendly to his vassal. We don't deserve to be a part of this covenant. We don't deserve to have this kind of relationship. But God has brought us into that. Not only that, you see that fear is, is also brought into this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So we can say that you know, God is a friendly father, but he is a father nonetheless. You know, when you say that last part, what is it emphasizing? His authority, right? He's still the father. You're not the father. You don't get to become the father. Just because the father's friendly with you and you guys are friends, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, you know, the father and the son have now become equal, right? He's a friendly father, but he's still a father. Or maybe, you know, the quote from, from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe can be helpful. You know, as Susan and Lucy are talking with the beavers. All right, this sounds weird, right? <laughs> if you've never read Narnia, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia before, you're going to be like, what? But all right, so she's talking with them. And, and the representation of God in Narnia, as C.S. Lewis wrote it, is a lion named Aslan. And so they're talking about Aslan. And so the beaver says Aslan is a lion, the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's kind of the way it is with God. Like, safe? No, God's not safe. God's God. Who could do anything. Absolute power and authority, but he's good. He's the king. He cares for his creation. And in fact, as you read through the Chronicles of what do you see? That while Aslan is not safe, those who are with Aslan find their safety in him. Which is actually what the next verse is describing here in our text. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. He makes known to them the covenant. And then verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. His people expect His protective care. His care, protective care. God may not be safe, but He is His people's safety. He is where we find our safety. But not only is God our guidance, um, those who follow after God not only expect God's guidance, but they expect God's deliverance as well. God's deliverance. Here in verse 16 through 18, we see his people expect his deliverance from internal sin. Now, when I say internal sin, I'm not saying necessarily the sin that just resides internally in us, but the, 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 the sin that proceeds internally from us. So it may come out of us, but it starts here. Starts in our heart. And that's what we read in verses 16 through 18. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely, afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. And so bring me out of my distress. Consider my afflictions and my troubles and what? And forgive all my sins. See, these afflictions and these troubles, they aren't just like illness, ailments. These are afflictions and troubles brought about by our own sinfulness. This troubles of my heart. It's my own sinfulness battling at war within me, creating distress and loneliness and affliction. And what's the call here? Is the, is the call of deliverance. Forgive all my sins. These people expect deliverance from Him, from those sins that flow out of them internally. But then His people expect His deliverance from those sins that are external to them, that flow externally into them. Which will be the next point. Verse 19-21. through 21. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in You. And may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Here he is calling for the deliverance that only God can give from the external sin all around him that is pressing in on him. And that is the world we live in. We live in a world where external sin is pressing in on us. Internal sin is pushing out of us. And people all around us feel the effects of it. But there's also this external sin pushing in on us. And it, and it feels like it's crushing us. And yet, what is the call here? Lord, you guard my soul. You deliver me. So I'm not put to shame. Why? Because Not because I lash out and try to take advantage of my enemy and fight the battle the way they would. I mean, some Christians, unfortunately, fall prey to that. And people begin to speak badly of them because of their Christianity or whatever. And the, the, the temptation was to lash out back at them and say, well, you think I'm like this? You're like this! Right? That's not what we're called to do. When 
when external sin pressure is pushing in, we're not meant to allow our internal sin to come pouring out, right? We need to be saved from both. What are we, what are we told to do? When someone hits us in the face, what are we meant to do as Christians? Are we not meant to turn the other cheek? Are we not meant to love our enemies? Are we not meant to do good to them? Show grace to them? Pray over them? Weep for their blindness? Share the gospel with them? In the hopes that they would turn and be saved from an eternity in hell? This is taking our refuge in God. Because that's not natural to many of us. Pray for our enemies, to do good to them, share the gospel with them. It's not natural. That's taking our refuge so that our integrity and our uprightness is demonstrated. That's what the psalmist wants. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. May may it be seen. Here's someone who who is not allowing internal sin to overflow when external pressure pushes in, but rather integrity and uprightness. Where does that come from? It doesn't come naturally from us. It comes from God. God's given that to us, right? He's the one who made us humble. He's the one who made us accept His ways. And now we're meant to live out that way. And then we have this last verse. Kind of an appendage added on here at the end. It doesn't really follow the acrostic here. But it's a call. Verse 22, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. And all his troubles kind of encompasses everything. Like the eternal sin, the external sin, everything. Redeem him out of all his troubles, which leads us to his people expect deliverance to redeem them. His deliverance is our hope. We are hanging on to that hope that what God can do can redeem us, can deliver us, can rescue us out of all of our troubles. Our hope Rests in Him alone. He is the trustworthy deliverer able to save us. So how can we connect this to everyday life? Three questions. First of all, who or what are you trusting to deliver you? Who or what are you trusting to deliver you? Now we're thinking of this in a broad sense, right? If you're, you know, you're in the rears on your bills, you're probably going to have to work extra hours and that's going to deliver you from that. And you're like, well, why doesn't God deliver me from that? Well, He does. He gives you the ability to work, right? I mean, but we're talking bigger picture here. Like when you're looking at life and when you're looking at how life is going to, to work and how life is going to run, are you ultimately trusting in your ability to work more hours to solve all your problems? To bring you a, a feeling of identity and hope in this life. That's a different question. Like if you're just asking, how do I pay my electric bill this month? That's one thing. If you're asking, how do I find identity in this life? How do I find success and fulfillment and hope in this life? How do I fight against the external pressures of this life? I'll just pour myself into my work. Some people do that. How do I stop this internal sin from growing in me? I'll just work more. If I work more, I won't think about it. I won't, I won't have the opportunity to fall prey to those sins. No, you're just falling prey to others. 
right? Because there's only one deliverer. And we have to ask ourselves, who are we trusting in to deliver us? It can only be Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have false deliverers who are untrustworthy. Because at the end of the day, I'm just using this one example, there have been many people who have poured themselves into their work, only like the rich ruler to have all their possessions left to another and stand before the throne room of God and be justly condemned to an eternity in a lake of fire and have to look up and say, can you just send Lazarus, dip his finger in water and touch my tongue because I am tormented in these flames. Because giving themselves to work wouldn't deliver them. It it was an untrustworthy deliverer. Giving ourselves to what this world describes as successful, to what this world describes as, as fulfilling, untrustworthy deliverers. I can't, I can't go into every single one because there are many, many, many. And, and, and you uh, individually have probably many, many untrustworthy deliverers coming and knocking at the door of your heart and mind saying, come, follow me. I have plenty of treasures to give to you. But their way is a way of destruction. There is no hope to be found in them. It's the woman in Proverbs who beckons you to come. And yet the banquet she offers is a banquet in the grave, we're told. That's what these offer. Who are you trusting to deliver you? Second, who or what are you looking to for guidance? So this is maybe a, a different, a little bit different level. So maybe you say, well, I'm trusting Jesus for, God, for, for deliverance, but I'm looking to the world around me for guidance. You know, they kind of tell me how, you know, my life should look these days, you know. Um, they tell me what the American dream is meant to be seen as. They tell me, you know, how I'm, I should dress or what things I should watch or what I should wear. Like we begin to like think about all these ways in which the world is trying to conform us to its image. Or what are you looking to for your guidance in life? Maybe you're considering, you know, what would... What, what should I do with my life? Like, what area should I invest myself into? Well, where are you looking for your guidance? Are you just listening to your friends and family? I mean, they know you well, and they'd probably be able to give you some, some advice as to how you should do But do you go to God? Like, does He get actually first place in guiding you? When you're confronted with choices in life, some of them big, some of them small. Like Some of them big, like what would you do with your life? But some of them even small, like how are you going to spend your afternoon today? Does God have any say in that? Let me tell you something. He should. How you spend your evening tonight. How you spend your morning tomorrow. Should God have any say in that? He should. If, it's, if, if these truths are going to connect to everyday life, then they need to affect everyday life, right? I'm not saying God's going to say, okay, Sunday, November 15th, here's your itinerary. 
No, but what am I saying? The principles that are presented here, like what you choose to do this afternoon should fit under all the paths of the Lord or steadfast, loving, and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It should fit with his covenant and his testimonies. Should. It should pursue, pursue his name. It should pursue his glory. It should demonstrate that you are one who has friendship with the friendly father, right? Not opposition with the father or not indifference to the father. And then the last question, how are you expressing worship to God? If God is truly trustworthy and you've experienced it, proclaim it. God is truly your deliverer and you've put your trust in him, proclaim it. Worship is about making known who he is. And part of that is proclaiming and part of that is then living it out. So live it out every day, proclaim it to those around you. It's, it's odd sometimes to consider the fact, and, and I, I fall prey to this myself, like, that people who are God struggle with talking about God. Doesn't that come down to an issue of worship? We don't really worship God like we should. We're not really in awe of God like we should be. And therefore, we sometimes are embarrassed to talk about Him. I mean, if we're truly in awe of somebody, I mean, because there are, there are things people are in awe of, you know, um, there's, some, there's some people here who are very much in awe of Michael Jordan, and they don't have any problems talking about him. You know, in awe of how he plays the game or whatever. You know, we have, we're in awe of certain things, and so we talk about them. They command our attention. Give our mind to them, but not only that, we want to share them with others. That's what it, that's what it really means to worship, Right? And if we truly worship God, if we truly are seeing Him as someone who's trustworthy, who's someone who's truly delivered us, we are going to proclaim. We're going to want to share that with other people. As you think about this psalm, maybe you need to go back over and read it again today. But consider what it's saying about God, that, that He is truly trustworthy, both for our deliverance and our guidance in life, that, that, that we have all our hope stored up in Him. Our soul, our very soul is being held by Him. How can we not then share his goodness. How can we not then talk about that at some point in time with our friends and our family? Um, maybe that. Maybe that's your afternoon. You know, you need to just talk to your family about this God who you believe in and trust in. Maybe it's. Hey, maybe I'll go go hang out with my friend for a little bit and talk to him about who who God is and how great he is. Maybe it's why the football game is on. I'm not saying that you have to like set aside a time, you know, and we're going to spend 30 minutes here having a mini-sermon. I'm not saying that. I'm saying everyday life should be including God in it. It's part of our worship. I hope that you incorporate that into your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness that you have on display for us here in the psalm and in, in, in our lives as we've experienced it. The goodness of, uh, of your trustworthiness that we're able to entrust ourselves to you, and that we, we have no fear of being let down in the future, no fear of being put to shame, 
Truly our security is in you. Though we lose everything, yet we will always have Christ. And he, and he, anyone who has sacrificed for him, as he promised his disciples while he was on earth, will be returned a hundredfold. Our security is in him. Our hope is in him for our future. Lord, I pray that our hearts would not give way to other deliverers who are seeking to usurp the place that only Christ has. Other guidance that is seeking to minimize the guidance that Christ gives to us. But rather, we are give, give ourselves fully to following after You and trusting in You and in You alone. That Your guidance would uh, overwhelm any other thing that would uh, would go against your will and your ways, and that we would submit to you faithfully and fully, Lord, that our worship, our worship would be known, not just on Sunday, but every day. That in our homes, our worship would be known by our family. That just in everyday conversation, you are glorified and honored and praised, Lord. In our workplace our everyday conversation, our going about our work, Lord, may you be known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.